Welcome to The Green Majority. We are Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, airing out of CIUT 89.5 FM and syndicated by stations across the country and available on all podcast platforms. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I am here with a special Just Transition episode as tomorrow, March 12th, is a national day of action with over 60 communities from coast to coast participating and coming together and collectively envisioning a better future. This show will feature three interviews with folks involved in this work. In just a moment, we'll go to a conversation with Chris Gusson from 350.org Canada. Then in the middle segment, we'll be joined by Tara Sukarin of Council of Canadians. And rounding out the show, Climate Justice Edmonton's Hannah Gelderman will tell us all about what they're planning out west. It's a great show with great people, and I hope you enjoy the conversations as much as I did. For those of you listening live or tuning into the podcast on Friday or Saturday, be sure to look out for your local action and join in the fun. And while you're there or anytime in the following week, please tag us in your tweets and photos from the events so that we can share and celebrate the great day that it will be. Thanks again for joining us, everyone. And now over to our conversation with Chris. I am here with Chris Guzzin, the Canada Digital Organizer with 350.org. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Stefan. It's uh, great to have you back. So obviously, we're spending the day or the show talking about this big day of action on March 12th. So let's start there. What is happening tomorrow? Yes, very exciting. I'm projecting myself into the future. Tomorrow's the big day. People across Canada are going to be taking action uh, to show their support for the passage of a Just Transition Act. So federal legislation that guarantees good green union jobs, puts people first, not corporate profits, and leaves no one behind as we race to decarbonize our economy, get off fossil fuels. Uh, That's what we need to do to tackle the climate emergency. So there's already, uh, as we speak now, there's over 40 events registered. So I'm assuming that by the time this is airing, there's going to be even more. So really every part of the country is going to be taking action tomorrow. And so can can you talk a bit bit about some of the actions that are happening uh, across Canada? Sure. So there's the real, this is a really exciting day of action. We've had days of action before that were in response to some sort of an acute crisis. Like this past September, we had the Canada on fire days of action, which were responding to wildfires that were raging across the country. This day of action is more about being imaginative and projecting our positive vision for the future. Um, So a lot of the actions are pretending that we're a couple of years in the future and the Just Transition Act has been passed and there's now a federal ministry of just transition. So for example, in Vancouver, outside the public library, there's going to be a big gathering that's essentially a press conference from the future where we'll hear from different uh, members of the community about just transition projects that are happening, that they're excited about. In uh, Saskatoon, there's gonna be a green jobs fair. And in other communities across the country, people are taking action outside their MPs offices and they're doing mock grand openings of just transition job centers. That's a big part of the message is that we can tackle the climate crisis in a way that an abundance of good green unionized jobs for people across the country. So green job centers in Ottawa, there's going to be a ribbon cutting of the new federal headquarters of the just transition ministry. So that's a kind of a flavor of what you're going to see. Lots of really imaginative stuff, bringing the just transition idea, which can be abstract for many to into concrete reality 
and really rooting it in the local communities where people are taking action. What I like about this is that it really is engaging in world building. You know, you, you really yes. are imagining and attempting to create a pathway towards a world that you see is, well, that, that seems obviously better. Let's be real. And each person, I think, will have another, a different take on, on what that world looks like. Every person's just transition might be slightly different. People who, especially from different sectors, you know, you might experience it differently if you're, you know, in the transportation sector versus the oil and gas sector versus any other sector that will be influenced, which will be honestly most sectors. Like if you work in the world right now, you probably will be impacted in some way in terms of a, like to decarbonize a world will take actions from everybody in some fashion. And so I wonder from you, what does the future look like when you've experienced just what is what's happening in your world that you envision? That's a great, great question. I think that the overall feeling right now is that we're in this in-between period where we're stuck. We're talking about the need to get off fossil fuels. Our leaders are talking about it, but they're not actually acting uh, in line with the speed that the, the climate scientists are saying we need to take, which is as fast as possible. Speed is justice in the climate emergency. So I think that uh, what it looks like in the world around me is that suddenly we flip the switch and uh, we're no longer in this stuck period. We're just racing uh, towards the solutions we need. So if I think about uh, my neighborhood in Kingston, Ontario, I'm probably seeing, you know, just transition ministry employees going door to door and talking to neighbors about getting heat pumps installed in their, in their uh, buildings so that they can cut their uh, gas lines and stop using uh, fossil fuels. There's suddenly, you know, instead of people stressing about what they're going to do for work, there's suddenly more than enough work because we know that the challenge of tackling climate change, like you said, it affects every single industry. So suddenly there's green job centers everywhere. You can uh, go and you can share what your passions and skills are and have uh, no trouble getting uh, that opportunity. And so I think if we're successful in winning this just transition, we get clarity instead of this uh, anxiety of being in this in-between period where people are talking about the climate crisis, but we're not actually acting uh, at the scale we need. Suddenly we have a concrete plan and we're rushing towards it. And we have this sense of uh, unity of com uh, communities coming together um, to make sure that no one gets left behind as we as we tackle this this crisis. Random curveball question. Something that I, I was speaking with someone from the Climate Caucus the other day, and they were speaking about the moving from this idea of sustainability to regenerate. And I think that's a very interesting point in that I so much of the last 20, 30 years has fat, has felt like our goal is to do less harm and mm. to try to hurt things less to get to a place where we're, yeah, the earth can sustain itself versus trying to get to a place where we are actually regenerating and, and, and improving the systems or, and, and helping them build back. Obviously a lot of that is probably just moving ourselves and letting, you know, nature in some ways take its course in some ecosystem systems, but everywhere. But it was, it was interesting about this idea was that it wasn't just in sort of an environment from perspective. It was like, no, our whole system needs to be regenerative. We need to be regenerating each other. We need to find that sort of place to get to where our actions are bringing about the world we like, rather than trying to just diminish our actions. There's a definitely a belief in this idea right now that like humans are degrading the world and we cannot mm. be a part of a regenerative future. And mm. so I'm curious if you think, or how you think that sort of that mindset might fit into this vision. Because it does sound like you're talking about these like, no, no, in the just transition, there's all these people who are working towards not just sort of managing it, but actually giving back 
Yeah, that's right. I think like it's always stuck with me probably because it rhymes, but I think uh, Naomi Klein has uh, used the term care and uh, repair economy. So we're moving from this extractive economy that sees humans as like inherently destructive to the earth to this economy that says, you know what, green jobs can be healthcare, they can be teaching, green jobs can be rewilding, going into, you know, areas that... Um, that we can just, like you said, let nature take its course. And, and that can be extremely helpful for things like carbon sequestration. So yeah, I, I think that's the right way to think about it. And again, thinking about trying to put place it in concretely in my own neighborhood, there's a big, empty, abandoned field not far from here. And if we're projecting forward three years, five years, when suddenly the just transition is this national project, I can imagine elders and school kids and, and families going into this area and helping to plant food forests or new trees or, and working on urban food security with support from the government because they see that as part of the Just Transition project as well. So we're really trying to fight for a broad version of a Just Transition that isn't narrowly focused on retraining for oil and gas workers. Oil and gas workers need support too, and that's definitely part of it. My colleague Emma shared uh, a story on uh, Twitter the other day about her neighbor who works in oil and gas, and he feels terrible about the fact that he's contributing to the climate crisis and he wants a way out, but he doesn't see that path. So I think if we actually got federal just transition legislation, there would be a path and retraining for people who specifically work in extractive industries right now. But then in our vision for it, it's much broader than that, and it's the society-wide project of like you said, regenerating and repairing and changing our relationship with the earth more broadly. I love that term care and repair. I, I feel like so often the opportunity to of the caring economy and the ways that it's been underpaid and underappreciated for so long, we've seen if COVID has shot us anything, it's that how desperately we need those who care for you know our elderly and our sick. And these are people who have unbelievably critical jobs and yet are constantly underpaid and experiencing cuts and cuts and cuts. And so I feel like investing in that caring economy is a no-brainer that we just have not really even begun to consider. Maybe because it doesn't Absolutely. feel climatey. It doesn't feel climatey. Part of the work that I do at 350 is I do a lot of our social graphics and ads. And so I'm always looking for good stock photos that don't feel too stock that are relate to the concept of green jobs. And yeah, when you search green jobs, you're getting a solar panel installer or someone who's climbed to the top of a wind turbine. But we're intentionally trying to move beyond that and, and widen people's lens. And I think that uh, tomorrow's day of action is going to show that. I think we're going to hear some amazing uh, stories and ideas from communities about what a just transition looks like where they are. And I think that's important. It has to be a, a big sweeping national project, but it also has to take on the characteristics of the community and address their needs. So I recently moved from Hamilton, Ontario. Like many places, there's a huge crisis, housing crisis and a crisis of homelessness. And so a just transition should address that too. And we should make sure when we say no one gets left behind, no one gets left behind. So what does it look like to have a build out of green public housing and green affordable housing across the country that works as both a massive job creator for people in skilled trades, um, as well as a way of addressing this awful crisis that we have around housing. Seriously. I feel like the opportunity to opportunity to combine housing and and green jobs is huge and hopefully one that is taken up. But yeah, to, to, and I think like that. I, sorry, go ahead. No, no, dive in. That idea of of stuckness. Like I've I've recently moved into uh, a new home and I'm thinking, okay, how do I make this place more energy efficient, more green? And right now, there's stories 
about the liberal government, federal government has programs where you can get a rebate for something like more efficient windows. But there's all these horror stories about how long it takes to get your rebate and get information from the government. If we truly flip into climate emergency mode, into just transition mode, those areas that will have, will um, hire enough people that we can actually do it properly. And we'll change the paradigm from just uh, chipping at the edges to thinking, okay, how do we as quickly as possible get everyone's house to be efficient, everyone's apartment to be efficient? And if you think about it that way, a huge green jobs can follow. Yeah, for sure. And in, in the last week's episode, I talked briefly about how there are some problems that are just throw money at it and there's a payback period. And hmm. home retrofits is 100% that, right? Home retrofits yeah. is the example of if you just put up the money up front, there is a payback period. It will become, it will pay for itself. You just have yeah. to get at it now. Sure. But most but, people like that's unfathomable if they're trying to struggle to, um, you know, pay their bills month by month. That idea is unfathomable. So again, the government needs to do way better about making sure all of our society can benefit from that. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the government has to put up the money. There's no way you can expect, at least for those of us who are not gigantic companies, those gigantic companies, yeah. they can invest themselves. It's they fine. can pay for it themselves. <laughs> yeah, they'll figure it out. But to, let's spend a second uh, talking about the sort of the term just transition, because there's definitely some concern around it in terms of whether it's being co-opted by the oil industry or it feels like it's capitulating perhaps too much to the oil industry in some ways. But obviously your vision and I think how people see it more generally is a broader way of understanding it. So why was this particular term chosen and what's sort of the battle to, to define it? Yeah, so it is true that the uh, oil industry is trying to co-opt the term just transition. And, you know, at the most recent COP, you even had oil CEOs talking about wanting a just transition for them and their companies. And of course, that's not what we believe in. And we, but we don't want to cede that ground. We don't want that to let them totally co-opt the term just transition. So we're using uh, the term just transition because it is the language that the federal government has talked about in 2019. Trudeau promised a federal just transition act. And we want to make sure that uh, the public gets excited about the boldest possible vision for a just transition. So we want to contest that and not let it be co-opted by big oil and not let the government narrow the scope of it um, so that it's just laser focused on people who currently work in the oil and gas industry, although they, of course, um, would be one of the biggest groups that would benefit and need support from that legislation. Uh, so for us, uh, it's important to contest it. It's important to build broad public support for a just transition that is truly just and expensive. So there's three pillars that we define as a just transition at 350 Canada and, and our partners in this event at Council of Canadians definitely would agree with this too. Number one is put people first, not corporate products, uh, not put people first, not corporate profits. So it's this, uh, instead of throwing money at uh, carbon capture and storage pipe dreams from the oil industry, directly investing in communities, directly investing in uh, job creation. The second pillar is guarantee good green union jobs. There is no shortage of work. We talked about that we need to completely uh, flip to this regenerative model and there's all of this repair and care work that needs to be done as we decarbonize and and try to recover from the terrible path we've been on so a green jobs guarantee is part of our vision as well and finally aligned with the climate science the most recent the ipcc just issued a new report it's terrifying and the big message from that is we um, have this diminishing window to move as fast as possible to uh, get off fossil fuels so the just transition needs to be speedy as well we need a clear path and we need it to move quickly yeah uh, that speed thing ends up being the the sticking point a little bit I, I always feel like if we were where we are now in 1990 our life would be so much easier 
and the movement that we're beginning to see now, then we have 20 years, you know, we can have a slow come down. That's okay. But differently as we are now. But you mentioned the set, you said the first, you said the phrase terrifying. And therefore I believe I know the answer to the next question. However, I'm collecting answers to it. So do you feel climate anxiety and how do you deal with it? Uh, Yes, I definitely feel climate anxiety and I work on this every day. So I'm thinking about it a lot. And yeah, I think, I think even people who work on this every day, like, and I I'm guilty of this, probably put it to the side too much and try to compartmentalize it too much. But the times when I've been more in touch with it and thought about my climate grief and gone to things like climate grief sharing circles or like kind of group discussions with other climate activists, I found that to be uh, really helpful. I don't do that enough. I'd like to do it more, but I think actually thinking about it can be regenerative and, and healing and can actually help you renew your enthusiasm for this work because the last thing you want is to burn out or and shut down and not be able to do it. Yeah. So I feel it. I think because I work on it every day, I've somewhat like numbed myself to it. I don't think that's necessarily a, a healthy thing. So I'd say like how I deal with it when I'm at my best is sharing uh, it with others, being open, talking with friends and family uh, and fellow activists about it. And then of course, action is the antidote to despair. That's what gives me fuel and, and energy and helps me to combat my climate anxiety is directly tackling the problem and channeling that anxiety uh, into righteous anger and to a strategic action that I know will help push us towards that social tipping point where we get towards that just transition or actually moving quickly to tackle the problem. So hopping on that righteous anger and mobilize, helping it mobilize you. If folks have now heard this interview and want to get mobilized for tomorrow's actions, how can they learn what might be around them and it, how can they get involved just more generally? Yeah. So like I said, there are actions happening all across the country. So more likely than not, if you're listening to it, there's an action that you can get to tomorrow. So right now, as you're listening to uh, this show, uh, go to 350.org slash M12. That's Mar- That's just for March 12th or 350.org slash Just Transition will take you to the same site. On that site, there's a map. So if you want, you can navigate around the map and find your town or you can just enter your town into the search bar, see if there's a red near you, click on it. You'll get all the details for when your local action is starting, where it's happening. I would recommend that you RSVP. There's a sign up that way the organizers uh, can get your information and be in touch about local next steps. And then head over there, bring a sign, bring a couple of friends, bring some family. This is really an opportunity to get beyond the usual suspects and to bring people in your life out to learn about a just transition, to get excited about a positive vision for how we overcome uh, the climate crisis. I think that's another Uh, answer to your question about climate anxiety, um, positive vision like the just transition that gives us a realistic, concrete way to move forward that can help people engage with it instead of just shutting down. So head to 350.org slash M12, sign up for an event near you and get out there. It's going to be a really great day. Family-friendly events, definitely something that everyone is welcome to attend. Amazing. Well, Thank you so much, Chris Gusson, the Canadian or the Canada Digital Organizer with Trivia.org. So great to have you on and good luck tomorrow. Thank you very much. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the coverage that you've given the Day of Action. We are back with part 
I can't, I don't know which part it's going to be. We are back. <laughs> we are back with our just transition special episode interview extravaganza. This time uh, with Tara Sukrin, the long, a longtime Council of Canadians Toronto chapter activist who recently joined their board of directors for the National Organization, to my understanding. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Stefan. Glad to be here. So by way of introduction, perhaps we can start with how you got involved first with climate action. Right. So my family, I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, which is in the Caribbean. I've always been involved in, you know, plants, outdoor stuff, but more focused moving to Toronto. I was going through a breakup where I was very sad and I saw this um, film. It was called Water Flow, F-L-O-W, For the Love of Water. And there was a quote in there about how people could live without love, but you can't live without water. And it made my breakup seem very tiny in comparison. And it inspired me to be like, right, this is what I want to do. I should be volunteering and I should do something water focused. And that's how I joined the Council of Canadians in 2008. Hey, that's such a harsh line. Like, people need love too, man. Come on. I think it's like Auden or somebody. It's it's an actual quote. So like, yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sure. And again, I'm not trying to belittle the people need water, but I just love the idea that it's like people need water more than they need love. I think like, it's obviously true. Don't get me wrong, but it's also, it's just, it, you, it's very rare. You hear a quote that denigrates love, right? Like, I feel like almost all of our quotes are about how like love is the most important thing. And so it's funny to have someone be like, yeah, love's great. But also if you don't drink water for two days, you die. Just a heads up. Yeah, I think it was looking at maybe from like one of those Maslow needs or hierarchy stuff. But yeah, you know, like love doesn't meet the Maslow needs hierarchy thing either. So yeah, I think today people need the love, but it's also really important to be like, oh yeah, water. And we take it for granted, but many people, different parts of the world, even right here, First Nations, they don't take water for granted because they can't, right? So yeah, for sure. And I hope no one takes this as to be like, I don't think water is important. I 100% water is obviously very important. <laughs> I just love the quote. So it's funny that your story in some ways mimics uh, my own from a standpoint of also going through a breakup and then seeing a movie that deeply impacted me. Although mine was The Cove and it was just the last 20 minutes of dolphins dying, which was much more traumatic, I think, than hearing this quote. But uh Apparently, breakups create activists. This is apparently a, a thing that happens. But plus, thank you for being here. And obviously, that's so you've been at this work for quite some time. 2008 is now 14 years ago. And so you have uh, a long history within the Toronto climate movement. And so for you, and then also, I'd be interested in for the Kansas Canadians, what does a just transition mean? So basically, we've been asking the government to pass the Just Transition Act. It's something that was promised. It's something that hasn't been done. You look at some of the you know, proposed bills coming out. It's very piecework-y in terms of how we recover and how we build forward. And while some of it is good, it's not cohesive. It's not comprehensive. And if we had a Just Transition Act, it would impact everything in terms of how we move forward. So whether it be healthcare or transportation or you know, new jobs or greening the economy, or moving off fossil fuels, like this would cover everything. And I think Canadians are starting to see after all the problems that we had with COVID, where one sector could affect the other sector and, you know, things can be affected and collapse and just 
basically go badly. It makes sense to have a comprehensive policy where nothing gets left out, nothing gets left behind. And also ideally empowering people to join and, and be part of it too, right? Like the whole point of a Just Transition Act or a Ministry of Just Transition would be that local people can get super involved and actually see, tell people what worked for them in their own community, because it's very different across the country, rather than politicians dictating, like, this is what you're going to do, or this is what will happen, or this is where, more importantly, we're putting our money into, right? Yeah, for sure. And so perhaps we can dive in a little bit about sort of, you mentioned like this theoretical ministry that could be created as a part of this action. And that begins this access of world building. And I, I've asked this to, to Chris already in the show, but to you, what does a future look like where the just transition has occurred? You know, I don't know what year this is going to be in the future, but let's presume that it has occurred and presume it occurred fast enough that we're not just dealing with runaway climate change. The most positive vision you can imagine, maybe. Right. I'm wondering if this is a plug for your game as well, where we did some very positive visioning exercises in there. And people tend to go in um, the utopia direction, right? Everybody wants to think of the best case scenario. Um, I, I, I'm not thinking super long term, but maybe within the next 10 years, because let's face it, our deadlines are make or break right now when it comes to climate change. We either get on that or we don't and inaction installs us. So I don't want to think about like a hundred years from now. I just want to think about the next 10 years. And it would be, we have a ministry of just transition. There are different departments across the country feeding into it. When we talk about a ministry, it's not just politicians. It would be stakeholders, people from NGOs, unions, business, definitely business. If they're not part of this, they're not going to. And that's a sector I think the climate people tend to forget. Like businesses can be good and forces for good right? Everyday people, homeowners, people who aren't homeowners, people who are new to the country. I want everybody who is impacted by this to be part of it. And if we're talking solutions, let's say for transportation, I don't want to hear solutions coming from a minister who has a private car, who literally never takes public transit or spends two to three hours of their day commuting or has to switch from multiple transit lines. Like, there aren't the people I want to hear. I want to hear from the person who's living it. This is their lived experience. And they can very quickly tell you, hey, these four things could make my life a lot easier. Why don't you implement these four things? And not just making these promises just before the election cycle. I think, again, this is why a ministry of just transition would be helpful because it could keep the work going, not just the couple of months before election. Yeah, it starts beginning to create that momentum that can keep going and carry forward the work. I feel like so often right now we experience climate action as like grants or new money injections, but that doesn't create the infrastructure to carry it forward, except it maybe does outside of the government, but certainly not in the government. The moment that a new government comes in, there's not some of these things that are carrying forward because it's just, okay, money out, other people build stuff. And there does not seem to be yet that sort of intentional creation of how to say bureaucratic might, that seems like a weird way of putting it. The, create the bureaucracy required to actually keep these activities going throughout time. Yeah, and I think some places are better than others. I know, as you know, the city of Toronto has been pretty good and pretty consistent with moving things forward. But like you said, other levels of government, other municipalities, they don't have that. And it's like you have great stuff that comes out and then it gets dropped and then it's no longer in favor and then it gets picked up again. 
And I mean, I, I do understand, I don't agree with the ideas of why they do this, but it just means that it's yet another year or four years or how many years until it gets picked up again. And every single year, forget every year, every month that we waste on inaction. And it, it, it just brings us to a very, very scary. I don't know if you saw the IPCC report that just came out. And I mean, that is scary. Scientists don't talk like that. Yeah, we were putting together a deep dive interview with one of the people that worked on it in the Canadian context in the future weeks. Last week, we did a good news only episode because we were so depressed about the world that we were like, we're only going to talk about good news. Turns out there's enough. If you only do a good news episode once every two years, you can really scrape together a great show. It's a bit, it was only the last few months. So that's a pretty good view uh, or overview of, of what a just transition can look like. I Before I dive into my sort of pivot question, I want to ask one other thing because you referenced it two questions ago, which is the importance of local leadership and the importance of understanding different communities. And I wonder if you can dive into that a little bit more to talk about why you think that's so key within a just transition that it is comes from sort of people in the communities rather than the more top-down approach. Right. That, that's a really good question. I mean, it, it's right there in the name, the just transition. They could have called it Ministry of Transition. And if it wasn't just then what's the point? And I think we're seeing this now too. People are getting very fed up or annoyed or depressed about what's happening. They would like to take change. They don't know how to do it. The way that a lot of policies or bureaucracies are set up, you don't know how to take action. You could work with an NGO or volunteer with an NGO. I mean, I did, you did. Um, but at the same time, some NGOs are better at uh, policy changes versus community building versus community cleanup, right? And it's like, where do you want to put your energy? And right now, there isn't one really good strategic way to do that. I, again, some cities are better than others. I, I know the city of Toronto, um, big up to Toronto because I am from Toronto, is working on stuff like this. But not every place is as is there yet, right? I think they'd like to be there yet, but they're not there yet. It has to do with basically, I hate the term, but it's, it has to do with buy-in. So if you're going to do something that applies to everybody and you want everybody to be part of it, if it doesn't work for them, they're not empowered to, to take part, right? Well, they'll take part, but they'll be like, grumble, grumble, I would have done it differently. So it makes sense to have everybody involved at the beginning, like when you're still doing the planning process. And again, some people, that's not where their energy will be. They'll be like, tell me the plan and I'll, I'll bring it out for you. No problem. But it, it's important to have everybody there at the table at the very beginning. They can give you insights and a richness and, and points that you and I and other politician people or people in general may not have considered. And then you could work on solutions that work for them. So you could say something like, we want to reduce greenhouse gases. Great. Everybody wants to or can agree with reducing greenhouse gases. But what does that mean for somebody living in one of the like tower renewal projects, right? Like, oh, well, we need to improve the insulation, but let's hire local people to do it. Let's train people, let's drop skills. Let's make sure that house, this building, this apartment that I live in and generations have lived in can be safe and not leaking air and not being cold and warm. But at the same time, my nephew got a job working on this and hey, my niece is going to be working on the solar project panel outside and keeping the, the, the youth so they don't have to do that three-hour commute to another part of the city and, and spending their time on transit, which is breaking down or, or isn't invested in it. And 
this is how it would work. Like, I don't see it being spaceships and rocket ships, although that would be very cool as long as it's not by multimillionaires, egomaniacs. But your life as is every day, doing the things that you're doing, taking care of the people that you love, making your food, getting your food locally, li living in a comfortable house, having some sort of brand control system so your landlord doesn't kick you out, making sure that the people in your family are engaged in green and green, green recovery type where they feel good that they're not exploiting people, maybe, right? They're, they're working on solar power. They're working on wind power. They're working on something that's good. They're working on a community garden and, and supporting that, right? And, and equaling it out too, because there's jobs like where stay-at-home moms aren't valued as compared to a banker. And it's like, no, but if she's also a stay-at-home mom and she's working to help build community resiliency in her neighborhood, then her job is actually more important than yet another banker, right? Sorry, yeah, that was, was a long answer, but no, that was that was a great answer. That was fantastic. Thank you. That it, that last little piece, actually, in the conversation I had with Chris just earlier, he referenced the sort of the the care and repair, which I think is a Naomi Klein uh, line, which speaks to exactly that sort of thing. The need to respect and promote and pay care work is just overwhelming, especially in this, right now. So, going back maybe to the personal, that's where we started this interview in. Do you feel climate anxiety? And if you do, how do you? I would say I feel more climate annoyance than anxiety. I consider myself a practical person. Some people might say I'm a little bit pessimistic, but I'm like, no, no, I'm just being practical. And honestly, and this is not something I share often with people because it's a bit bleak. I think we as a species, human beings, if we are dumb enough that we can't save ourselves, from what everybody knows is extinction coming, then maybe it's not our time. Maybe we have to go and make space um, for the rise of the cockroaches. You know, it was the age of the dinosaurs. Who's next after the age of humans, right? Because literally, if we're too dumb to figure this out, then we don't deserve to be there. That being said, I do realize that climate change especially is a phenomenon that is not affecting everybody the same I mean, we're here in Toronto, North America. I have food, I have electricity, I have water. I can be like, hey, climate change doesn't really affect me. I'm not living in an island where, you know, literally my house is underwater. I am not like suffering extreme heat like the people did out west last year. I am watching my parents. They're living in the Caribbean. Every year, bigger and bigger hurricanes are coming through, which, you know, you're living in a tiny island state and you can't dodge them, right? And I mean... There, there's so many examples of this affecting people, poor people, native people, indigenous people. It, it disproportionately affects BIPOC communities as well. And that's not fair, right? Because they did not cause this climate change problem. They aren't the ones that are driving it. And therefore, I am resolved that I'm going to try as best as I can to change because it's really not fair. The animals didn't ask for climate change, right? Our trees didn't ask for climate change. So let's try to, I always try to think of, yes, it'd be great if humans had a future, but let's think of all the people and the different parts of the world that need a future too. We, we owe it we owe it to everyone who did not cause this at the very, very least. And so final question with a, an offer to pitch, basically, which is that this show is going out on March 11th, which means tomorrow is the big day of action. So for folks who have heard you talk and want to get involved with Kids Canadians, how can they? And then also, 
if you can you give an inspiring sort of call to action for folks who are maybe on the fence about going out to their local action tomorrow, like why should they get involved? Right. So if you want to, you could go to the Council of Canadians website, which is canadians.org. It really could not be simpler. And you can see everything that's happening there. And in terms of getting involved, one, it's going to be fun. In Toronto, there's going to be a giant inflatable elephant. So come on, join the fun. Two, I think after COVID, people have been trying to do something again in person. And everything is being done safely outdoors. You could still have that sense of being with people, not just on a Zoom call, but actually taking action directly to your MP and, you know, making them do the right thing. Meet new people. It's a social thing, but it's also safe. And I know for Toronto, the weather is supposed to be good. So, you know, go take a couple hours of your life and uh, meet some new people, see a giant elephant. And I'm pairing those really inspiring fun actions across the country with this too. And be part of it. It's an easy, simple, low-risk, COVID-safe ask. And if you have been trying to figure out a good way to get involved, this is as simple and as easy and as welcoming and as introductory as it gets. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Tara Sukran, a longtime Council of Canadians Toronto chapter activist and recent member of the board of directors. Thanks so much for joining us and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Stefan. I'm here with Hannah Gelderman, the organizer and organizer, not the and organizer with Climate Justice Edmonton. Thanks so much for joining us. I know. Thanks for having me today, Stefan. And so as a way of introduction, uh, can you just tell us more about Climate Justice Edmonton and how you personally got involved in climate work? Yeah, absolutely. So Climate Justice Edmonton is a volunteer-run group or collective. We're based in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskatree, Waskahaikin which is also known as Edmonton, Alberta. We've been active since about 2017, 2018. And overall, we're working to educate, energize, mobilize Albertans and, and push for systemic changes, bold climate solutions and political accountability, kind of all levels of government, but certainly like with the a lot of our work at an Alberta and Alberta focus. And we really strive to align our work to other local and global struggles for justice and overall fight for collective liberation and a livable future for all of us. And so, yeah, we do this through a, quite a few variety of activities, like different campaigns, actions, events, different educational stuff, our social media, and lots of kind of solidarity and support efforts too in working with other groups. And so for myself personally, I was volunteering with a Greenpeace group. I started that in around 2014, and then that was good. And then over those years, working on different stuff in Edmonton, it was around 2017, 2018, there was a few of us who were really looking how we could have a bit more of a local focus and an independent name. And so we came together at that point to form Climate Justice Edmonton to really be able to, yeah, kind of like narrow our scope and have a local presence with the climate justice, within the climate justice movement. Awesome. And so, and, and so 
the last two conversations I've had have been more general with organizers, uh, but the more what's going on, but you personally are organizing something in Edmonton for tomorrow. Can you tell us what you'll be doing? Yeah, first of all, I'm happy to say that we're actually one of two events that's happening in Edmonton tomorrow. So I can, can talk a little bit about the other one as well. But so yeah, as you probably know, we're participating in this Just Transition Day of Action. And so our event, what we're going to be doing is we're targeting or we're holding it downtown at the Liberal MP Randy Bostonot's office as one of the few or only Liberal MPs in the province. So it's a good target. And so we're going to be hosting our event as if it's 2025 and that we were that we are three years into the Just Transition Act. So we're looking back and saying, okay, this Just Transition Act was passed in 2022 and, and the Ministry for Just Transition has been active since 2022 and getting the perspectives of a few workers who can report back on how their work has shifted and what their work and their jobs look like under the scenario of a Just Transition Act. And we'll hear from the minister, from the Ministry of a Just Transition. And so really taking the opportunity to imagine and, and share what we imagine if things were going in the way that we wanted them to. And the other event is taking place in Riverbend, Conservative MP Matt Genero's office. And that will actually be a little bit earlier in the day at 11 a.m. And they're going to be opening a job center as part of their action. So we're thinking that they can flow nicely together, like we can reference refle reference each other's events and maybe have a bit of time travel in between the two events. So we have the opening of the job center and then we have the report in a few, report back a few years later. That's, that's super cool. I, one thing I will just say I really appreciate about this day of action is the creative element of the sort of time travel and futuristic element that y'all are putting forward to. And I want to come back to that, but before we do, I am curious to know your thoughts, especially as someone who is based in, in Edmonton, why you think a just transition is, is so important? Uh, I think there's a few reasons. One for sure is that kind of being able to talk about a transition either as like an unplanned transition, which is what we're on track for, or having a planned transition and, and really recognizing either way there's going to be a transition and we want a planned transition and really to have a message that can resonate with workers, especially in this province, like oil and gas workers and other workers in industries that are supporting oil and gas and to really push that a just transition is a transition that supports workers as they either retrain or have education with income supports, other things, and that there's a job at the or like throughout and after the transition. But of course, not limited to oil and gas workers either. Really being able to speak to workers in all sectors and to make sure that a just transition can offer, yeah, dignity and respect and equitable jobs throughout. And I think another thing is really being able to kind of in a bigger picture, have the messaging of a just transition or the plan for a just transition also address other systemic inequities and crisis that we're facing. And so leveraging this as an opportunity for the transformations that we want to see in many different areas. Let's dive into a little bit that of that future imagining kind of world in a world where a just, a, a just transition has occurred. What does that future look like? for you yeah so i guess I'll, I'll just start by saying for us we see ourselves too as like being able to open the space for a big vision and not really be yeah not to compromise and not to yeah to put forward a bold vision and then kind of as you get down to the more specifics it's actually up to each nation or community um, or sector to say oh exactly what that just transition should look like and what are their needs individually but 
like I said, we we can definitely advocate for a bigger broad vision and the values that we want to see underpinning a transition. And so, like I said before, certainly if a just transition has occurred, that there would be good jobs for all, dignified working conditions. And like I said, for oil and gas, but I can expand to on other sectors. There's lots of care worker and healthcare workers and education workers, like sectors, which especially in this province, but across the country too, we've seen cuts to education and just like this bombardment on healthcare without having, yeah, having adequate supports or measures in place to maintain, to avoid healthcare worker burnout and things like that through COVID and other things. And even like working in within harm reduction or safe supply and things like that and, and migrant workers, there's so many different kind of through COVID too, we've seen lots of different sectors, especially within migrant workers and migrant justice advocating for workers. And so that all of these demands of these other movements, like the movement for Black Lives and movements for, for Indigenous sovereignty and land back, like those demands are being met. They're being honored. They're being engaged with in truly meaningful ways. I would also like to see four-day work weeks. I conducted an interview, which we haven't actually aired yet on the show, where we talked about how the slowing down of society feels like one of the pieces that is so necessary to get this kind of things done, mm-hmm. which is interesting when paired with a feeling of urgency that comes with climate change, right? Like trying to manage the idea that, no, we all have to slow down is such a necessary piece combined with the idea that we also still have to be acting on climate as fast as we can. It's a weird middle ground, but I think it's, however you throw the needle, I think is truly the answer. Yeah. One thing that I also think about a lot in relation to this is like a world where a just transition is happening or a world where we're taking climate action at the scale that is necessary is a place where we no longer have to be resisting, ideally. Like we don't have to say be fighting against this pipeline. We don't have to be fighting against like like blue hydrogen, which is kind of the next thing that's coming up in Alberta. It's like we can actually put our energy into creating. We can put our energy into building. Um, and making things better. And that's something that personally I would love to have. I look forward to hopefully be able to do that one day. Because I think that's what can be so draining too, is the the resistance that is continually necessary right now and the fighting and the frustration. Yeah. And and the fighting is so counterintuitive because we have this ability and there are so many builders within this movement who spend all of their time just having to say no to stuff to try to make it stop making it worse rather than to begin to actually make things better. Exactly. It, yeah. We're losing so much energy from so many people. So a, a slight pivot because you are a visual artist and you come from that sort of creative background and given the sort of creative nature of this ask. And I think it's so fascinating that sort of that's where this came to, which is like, no, we're going to envision the future, but obviously visioning the future comes Art is so central, I think, to visioning the future in any medium, really. And so I'm curious if you can talk about how you see it as a tool to visualize that and visualize what can happen and how we can support that better, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I think it's great that you said from the outset that that art can be a tool, art in any medium can be a tool, because this event is a bit more theatrical or it has the potential to be theatrical, depends how far we go. But yeah, really through art, being able to to imagine these worlds and to put forward the vision of what the world can look like. Because as we talked about, when people are spending so much time in this resistance space or even like in short-term news cycles, it's hard to 
think about what things can look like in three years or five years or 10 years. Um, and so really, whether it's like through illustrations or stories or videos uh, or theater, being able to paint a picture of what the world is that we want. And so by having that as something, it's kind of like a, a guidepost out there, if you will, that people can ideally get behind that and see, oh, that's what we're fighting for. That's what we're pushing for. And even more so like when these sort of visions are grounded in actual like places and communities and actions maybe that are already happening. So finding examples of where these things are already in motion and like expanding them even more that can, I think, be a hopeful and inspiring thing for people. For sure. And so I'm curious if there are groups in there, out there who are listening to this and are involved in sort of action, but haven't yet successfully connected, say, some of the more artistic elements to their actions. Do you have any tips or ideas of how folks can can support either artists who maybe are not necessarily super activists to join the movement to support that, or how they can unlock their own artistic potential to you know bring that energy into the visioning? Yeah, I'm trying to think of like really concrete things. Like I've done some work like personally around that, and I made a series of zines that talk about that. And so I think some of it, if it's an, a group of organizers or activists who are trying to, to yeah, to get more creative is kind of like, I guess, making the decision to put some time and energy into that and do some either research around what other groups have done to get inspired or do some thinking about it as a group. But ideally, there's a lot of room for collaboration between artists and, and organizing groups or for artists to join in movements. And I think this is happening in different places for sure. Like I've seen plays that are on around these topics or different art artworks, but continually like finding ways for artists to move away possibly from like only a gallery or like traditional art settings into this into the streets or into places where they can be collaborating with social movements. And so sometimes, yeah, it's just about in the networks, in your communities where you are, like asking around, reaching out, saying if you know someone who's an artist, if they're interested or if they know other people or kind of vice versa. If you're an artist trying to think or reach out to local organizing groups that are in your community and, and seeing how to get involved with them. So another whole pivot, because this panel is, is, is <laughs> keep switching angles, but I'm it's a, something that we I keep coming back to, which is, do you feel a climate anxiety? And if so, how do you manage it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I would say for me, I experience it more in forms of sadness or he often like a heaviness and like lots of cynicism about the state of things. Or yeah, those are some of the main ways. And I think I like manage it to varying degrees. A lot of it is just like ignoring it. Uh, which isn't productive nor healthy, but it's a reality. But definitely my sister, Gabrielle Galderman, who you had on the podcast a little while ago, is a great resource. She has been opening up spaces, like facilitating spaces for organizers or for people experiencing climate grief and climate anxiety. So even like it's attending some of her kind of open Zoom spaces so far or lots of my personal conversations with her are always a good place for me. And I find personally too, writing has been a way that I've explored or expressed some feelings around that. And usually actually hasn't been on my own volition being like, I'm going to write in my journal. It's like, 
I took a, a poetry and social movements class in my master's and then all my poems end up being about how I was feeling. And so it's kind of like when I get these prompts or these invitations for writing in other ways, that's often where I find myself starting to just like weave those ideas in or exploring how I'm feeling. And so that's probably a, a sign I could do more writing on my own too. <laughs> as a way to help process that and yeah, reflect on how I'm feeling and share it. Yeah, that's totally fair. I deeply empathize with a sentence, I could do more writing as someone who is consistently feeling like they could do more writing. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you so much for all of that. And so for those folks uh, who are in around the Edmonton area who perhaps heard this interview and want to be able to either, either attend tomorrow or stay connected to Climate Justice Edmonton, how can they do that? For sure. So you can come on out to either event that is going on in Edmonton. That's at Riverbend Square at 11 a.m. or on 124th Street at Randy Boissonade's office at 2 p.m. But I would say in either of these cases, just double check on our social media. That could be Instagram or Twitter, and we'll have more specific details about that. And even if you can't make it out tomorrow, then the, the, our social media are signing up for our newsletter on our website are great places just to stay in the loop about what we've got going on and what we've got coming up. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hannah Gelderman, organizer with Climate Justice Edmonton. Thank you so much for being here. And yeah, any last thoughts? That's a big one. I think what's exciting about this action and it is for me that it's hopeful. And so finding ways that, yeah, in and amongst all the things that we can be quite distraught about to find a group of people that you can join with to, to create these moments of energy and to create spaces where you feel hopeful. And really kind of through this work, we have nothing to lose by trying our best through it. And, and that in itself of getting together with others to do this work can really be uplifting.